How many of you guys thought you'd hear the black eyed peas this morning when you came into church? Right? Right? That's my favorite black eyed peas song, by the way. Uh, there's a purpose, there's a reason why we watch that video. Uh, and I think it will become clear. I have two microphones. Sweet. It's going to stay there. Okay. Um, I'm going to be reading from Matthew chapter 5. Russ, that's your cue. You can hit the next button. There we go. Okay. I'm going to be reading from Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to be reading out of the New Century Version or the New Christian Version. I forget which the C stands for. Um, But if you're reading along in your Bible, it might sound a little different. If you're reading up here, I think that's the right um, translation. Um, But any translation is good. Um, So reading in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 43, it says, You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who hurt you. If you do this, you will be true children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the good people and on evil people. He sends rain to those who do right and to those who do wrong. If you love only people who love you, you will get no reward. Even the tax collectors do that. And if you're only nice to your friends, you're no better than other people. Even those who don't know God are nice to their friends. So, you must be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. So here's the question that everyone's asking especially after the shooting earlier this week in Florida. Where is the love? Why, excuse me, why is there so much hate in the world today? Or maybe more precisely, why is there so little love in the world? See, this this is not a new question. Um, it, it didn't just happen since the shootings earlier this week. It didn't happen. It didn't start at 9-11. It didn't start at Pearl Harbor. It didn't start at World War I. It's, it's been a question that has been around since the beginning of time. Since God created Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. In Matthew five forty three, Jesus asks this question. He wants to know where is the love in the world that God has called his people to display. You see, the religious leaders of this time, back in the first century AD and before that, um, had taken God's commandments and extended them to their supposedly logical conclusion. See, in Leviticus, God gave all of these laws to the people of Israel, okay, Leviticus 19.18 says, love your neighbor as yourself. That's a pretty good, pretty good rule, pretty good law, right? I mean, it comes from God, so it's got to be, be okay, right? Um, so, so, but the religious leaders said, well, how much further can we go? How much further can we take this? And so they drew it out to what seems to be a logical conclusion, okay? So if you love your neighbor, you must need to hate your enemy, right? I mean, it it makes sense on the surface. It's logical, right? The opposite of your neighbor would be your enemy. 
Um, the, the opposite of your friend would be your enemy. Um, and so you should treat them oppositely. You should treat them in a different way. Um, so therefore, the opposite of love would generally be considered hate. So if you love your neighbor, you should hate your enemy. That makes sense. It, it seems logical. But the problem is that God didn't make that commandment. He made the first part, love your neighbor, but he didn't make a commandment to hate your enemy. That's not how God wants his people to live. In the next verse, Jesus gives a correction to that false teaching. And that false teaching isn't just from 2,000 years ago. It's a false teaching that is perpetuated today in the church. And he calls us and tells us how God wants us to live our lives. Jesus tells us that instead of hating our enemies, we need to love them. We need to pray for those who persecute us. We need to pray for those who hurt us, for those who hate us. Now, this is something that the people did not expect. They didn't expect Jesus to come and give them a whole different direction, 180 degrees from where they were going before. Love your enemies? Pray for people who, who intentionally hurt you and seek you out? How could that be right? You see, you, you have to take the context back into first century Palestine. You see, for the Jewish people, they did not at that time have a Jewish state. They had been exiled and reconquered several times, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Medes, the Persians. And at this time, in first century, the people that the Jewish people hated the most were the Romans, the Gentiles, the non-Jews. This person, this Roman Empire, was the oppressor. This was the person that stood in the way of a Jewish state, that stood in the way of the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that he would be, raise a, good, a great nation, that he would give all of that land to the people of Israel as their inheritance. He, they stood in the way of true worship. They were able to worship in the temple at the time, but not the way that God had called them to. Not exactly the way that God had called them to. They were subject to all these taxes and all these rules and placed upon them by the Roman government. <clears throat> Excuse me. So the Jews of this day, of Jesus' day, were waiting for a Messiah that was going to come and was going to overthrow the Romans. He was going to come in, he was going to wipe them out, and he was going to establish David's throne again in Israel, in Jerusalem. And he was going to be dominant over the rest of the world. So how could it be that they are called to love these people? This doesn't match up with what our expectations are of what God wants to do in my life. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus gives a story. He gives us a story, an example of what this love looks like. It's a story most of you are probably familiar with, though you may 
you may or may not know um, a lot of the context behind this story. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. Many of you are familiar with the word Samaritan. You know, we have the Good Sam uh, thrift stores down the road. We got um, some of you know that it's actually a church, the Good Samaritan Church. Um, but this story about the Good Samaritan didn't make any sense to the people of first century Palestine. See, Jesus tells a story about this man who went on a journey. Um, and and he, so he was traveling, but on the way, he was mugged. He was beaten up by robbers and left to die on the side of the road. Soon after this happened, a man passed by. This man happened to be a priest. One of this Jewish man's neighbors passed by. But instead of stopping to help the man, he passed by on the other side of the road and just kept on going. And then a little bit later, another person came by, a Levite. Another one of the man's neighbors came and just kept on going. Didn't even cast a second glance at this man laying by the side of the road. Two of this man's neighbors, two people of fellow, two fellow country pe- countrymen of this individual passed by him and just ignored him flat out. They didn't waste their time. They didn't waste their energy. They just kept on going. They didn't even call for someone else to come and help. You see, they were too busy serving God to help out this man. And not to mention the fact that if they helped him out and they got blood on themselves, they would then be unclean and impure and unable to enter into the temple and unable to do their Jewish religious duties. They would have been soiled. They would have been tarnished. But then a third person came along. And this is a person that this Jewish man who was laying on the side of the road dying was probably not expecting. You see, it was a Samaritan. Now, I told you that that the, the Romans, the Gentiles, were hated by the Jews because they oppressed them and they were in the way of what they saw as the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. But there was somebody they hated even more. This would be the Samaritan. You see, Samaritans were hated because they were half-breeds. They were the descendants of Jewish people that had intermarried with the Greeks, the Romans, the Gentiles. They had betrayed their religious heritage. They had betrayed their generic heritage. And so there was a lot of animosity and hate between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. They were traitors. To put it in in somewhat more modern terms, the hate that existed between Samaritans and Jews could be liked to the hate between Nazis and Jewish people during World War II. Or the hate between members of the Ku Klux Klan and people of African American descent. That's how much hate and animosity there was between these two people. And so if the Jewish man who was laying dying by the side of the road was expecting anything from the Samaritan, he was probably expecting him to come and finish the job off. 
to take anything left that he had and just end him right there. Nothing short of mockery and ridicule. Ha, Jew, you got what you deserved. But Jesus gives us a different kind of example. Instead of showing hatred toward this Jewish man, the Samaritan decides to show love to his enemy. To show love to a person who probably persecuted him the day before. He cleans him up. He provides care for him until he gets better. Can you imagine? Oops, my bad. Can you imagine a Jewish person caring for a Nazi during World War II? Or, or a member of the KK um, being lying on the side of the road and a black man comes along and takes care of him and makes him well? Can you imagine that? Especially back in 1800s, early 1900s. Maybe um, somewhat today, but not so much back then. See, Jesus knows that these questions, these, 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 these conflictions are happening in the minds of his listeners. And so he tells them about the love that God has for those who love him and for those who hate him. In verse 45 of Matthew, Jesus says that God causes the sun to shine and the rain to fall on the righteous, those who love him, and on the unrighteous, those who don't love him. God shows love to both people. Jesus modeled this example of loving the unrighteous and the unlovable throughout his entire life, throughout his entire ministry. Who did he spend time with? Did he spend time with the religious leaders of his day? Did he spend most of his time in the temple, in the church? He spent most of his time with tax collectors. He spent most of his time with prostitutes, with lepers, with the people that were the outcast of society. Jesus makes an argument in this, in this passage that puts the righteous people in their place. He says in verses 46 and 47, if you love only the people who love you, you will not get a reward. Even the tax collectors do that. And if you are nice only to your friends, you're no better than other people. Even those who don't know God are nice to their friends. In other words, so what? Who cares? If you're good to people that are good to you, whoop do you freaking do? If we live like the world lives, there's no difference than, from us in the world. Why would someone want to become a Christian when there is no difference between being a Christian and being in the world? Except for you get a label on yourself. You get to come on Ash Wednesday and get a cross on your forehead. Or you get to come and you get to eat those nice yummy little things for communion. Mm. But other than that, that's, you mean I have to get up on Sunday morning? I can't sleep in? I don't know about that. I have to actually do, come and, and serve and do stuff for people? I don't, know, I don't know about that. If that's all there is to being a Christian, that's, I, don't want, I don't really want a part of that. To be honest, if that's all there is to being a Christian, I don't want to be a, have a part of that. But you see, Christians are not called to live like the world. 
Yes, the Bible says we are called to be in the world, but we are not called to be of the world. We're not to be identical to the world. We are called to a higher standard of living than the world is called to. Paul, you guys know who Paul is? He's a pretty big deal. He wrote most of the New Testament. He liked to use this image when he, when he spoke about the way we are called to live. He liked to talk about athletes. I love athletes. I'm not the best athlete myself, but I like athletes. I love sports, right? So Paul used to use this image, and he said that we are called to run the race marked out for us. So we're going we're gonna to run a little bit, pun intended, with this image of an athlete, okay? I want you to think back. Now, this, this is almost 10 years ago. I want you to think back to the 2008 Summer Olympics, okay? There's this guy that was like this super athlete in the 2008 Summer Olympics. His name was Michael Phelps, okay? In the 2008 Summer Olympics, Michael Phelps won eight gold medals. Eight gold medals. That means first place. That means nobody else was better than him in those races, Now, Michael Phelps was called to a higher standard of living. And and throughout all of his Olympic career, Michael Phelps has won more than 28 total medals. Not all of them are gold, and he didn't win all of them by himself. He had relays. He had had some other stuff. Okay, But there is no way that he, he could have won any of those medals if he had decided to live by the standards of an average person who likes to swim. Okay? Here's some, here's some information statistics. Well, I don't know statistics, but information for you guys. In preparation for the 2008 Summer Olympics, Michael Phelps trained six hours a day, six days a week, swimming approximately 50 miles every week. That's over eight miles every single day. Now, I like to swim. And I've, I, I've, tr- I've tried this before. This was a long time ago. I tried to swim a lap in an Olympic-sized swimming pool. Have any of you ever done that? Olympic-sized swimming pools are big. Like, they look big on the TV, but if you ever actually jump into one, they are big. Okay? Now, one lap in an Olympic-sized swimming pool is 100 meters back and forth. That's one lap. And that's only a little bit more than six hundredths of a mile. One lap. Michael Phelps swam eight miles. You know how many laps that is? More than I want to think about. That's that's exhausting. Okay? Okay. So in the same way that an Olympic athlete is called to train to a higher standard of training than the average person, so also a Christian is called to a higher standard of living and a higher standard of preparation than an average person. The last verse in Matthew 5, Jesus tells us the standard to which we are called to live. Do you know what that standard is? You must be perfect. Just as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
Now, you're probably thinking the same thing I thought the first time I heard that verse. Perfect? Uh Uh-uh. There's no way this side of heaven that I will ever be perfect. But you have to understand the meaning of the word perfect. And here's a revelation for you guys. The Bible wasn't written in English. Well, it's it's in English now, but not originally. It wasn't originally written in English. It was originally written, the New Testament was originally written in Greek and Aramaic. Okay? The Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. Can you go to the next slide? So this word perfect that we have is the word in Greek, it's teleoi. It's the same word as the Hebrew word tamim. And in the English, it's translated perfect, because we only have one word for perfect in English. The Greek language is, is just rich. They have multiple words for love. They have multiple words for different things. So if you ever have an opportunity to study Greek, do it. It was one of my favorite classes in college. Greek is just this rich, rich language, okay? So this, this word perfect, teleoi, is different than what our average understanding of the word perfect is in English. See, this word denotes not a sense of of complete perfection without error or possibility of flaw. And instead, it means wholeness. It it means it expresses the idea of, of reaching a goal or fulfilling a role. Let me give you an example. This is a stool. I know that's a big revelation, right? This is a stool. This stool is not perfect. There are scratches in it. I bet you that if I were to take an exact tape measure, one of these legs is slightly shorter than one of the other ones. Okay? There's, there's dents. There's dings in it. Right? But I'm going to test and see if it's perfect. Pray for me. What is the purpose of this stool? To hold me up when I sit on it. And so this stool is teleoi. This stool is tamim. This stool is perfect. See, God wants you to be perfect. God wants you to fulfill the role to which he has created you. And what is that role? What is that purpose? The purpose is to love. That whole passage is talking about love. Therefore, that perfection that Jesus is talking about is talking about love. In the first verse of the song that we listened to from the Black Eyed Peas, it said, that says, the song, Where is the Love? There's a profound statement. The words say, if you only have love for your own race, then you only leave space to discriminate. And when you discriminate, it only generates hate. So if you only love certain people, hate is the result. I think this really captures the meaning of what Jesus is saying here in this passage. 
If we only love people who are like us, Christians, Nazarenes, the righteous people, Americans, people with the same skin tone that we have, people that speak our same language, people that have the same uh, political affiliations, Republicans, Democrats, straight, gay, old, young. The result is going to be discrimination and hatred. Not the love that draws people into a relationship with their Savior. Now the thing is, and I hate to tell this to you guys, but I love to tell it to you guys, is that you can't do it. You do not have the ability to love the way that God has called you to love. You can't. Believe me, I've tried. I know a lot of people that have tried. You can't do it. There's nothing that you can do under your own power that will enable you to live the life that God has called you to. Part of the chorus for this song, and they changed it in their updated version, which, which makes me a little frustrated, but they, they cry out. They, they just give this plea. They say, Father, 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 help us. Send some guidance from above. Now, I don't know that they were intentional about that the first time they wrote it, but it, it speaks volumes because they don't realize, Black Eyed Peas didn't realize that that answer to that plea had already come. Over 2,000 years ago, in this little town of Bethlehem, a baby was born. God sent his son to live a life of perfect love, without sin. Then to die for us, in our place, so that we could also be empowered to live a life of perfect love. And after he died, he rose again, he ascended into heaven, he sent his spirit out on the church. It's not like the Spirit hadn't been there before, but there was a new understanding and a new awakening of the Spirit in Acts. Because it is only through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit on your life that you can love the unlovable. In 1 John 3.16, John tells us what love is. 1 John 3.16 I think I have that up there. I can't speak Spanish, sorry. I I took it in college, and I remember uno, dos, tres, and that's about all I got. I'd like to study it again. So I'm going to read it. I I think, I hope this is the right verse. Okay? It says, this is how we know what real love is. Jesus gave his life for us. So we should give our lives for our brothers and sisters. We are called to love the unlovable so much 
that we would be willing to lay down our lives for them, just as Christ did for us, even while we were still sinners. The Bible says, even while we were still enemies of God, he laid down his life for us. There was a really good example of this in the Florida school shootings. Coach Aaron Feist, I don't know if I'm saying his last name right. He used himself as a human shield and took bullets for his students. I don't know if he's a Christian. I don't, I don't know his story. But that was an example of the love that God has called us to. Have you ever heard of the word sanctification? Do you know what that word really means? It's kind of a vague, ambiguous term that we like to throw around in the church to be sanctified, to be made holy. Um, but this is what it means. Okay, and it's very base. If you if you take it down to the very base of the word, it means growing in divine grace and growing into love. That's what it means to be sanctified. Okay, when you are saved, when you accept Christ into your life, you are immediately saved and you are sanctified. You start growing in love. Every single Christian, upon your justification, you are sanctified. Okay? And there's a favorite term in the Church of the Nazarene that we like to throw around as well. It's called entire sanctification. It simply means to reach perfection in love. Now, it's kind of, it can be a dangerous phrase because entire sanctification kind of brings along with it the, 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 the connotation or, or the understanding of fulfillment and being done. That's not what it is. Okay, that's another one of the limitations of the English language. Is that entire doesn't mean done. It doesn't mean whole in this sense, in this, in this, in this reason, okay? But it, it's, it means coming to a point that every action that I take, every decision that I make is based out of the love of God for those around me, both for my neighbor, my friend, and my enemy. It means always choosing the loving response. So my question for you, my challenge for you this morning is a simple one. I think it's simple. Are you willing to step up and let God take a hold of your life in a new way that maybe you've never experienced before and empower you to live the life of love that is so much more than you have ever thought or experienced before? Are you willing to move out of your comfortable little clique and circle of loving people who are like you, who look like you, who talk like you, who dress like you, who work like you, who play like you, who do stuff that you do, and reach out and start loving people that are different? Are you willing to let God pour out his Holy Spirit upon you anew this morning? And sanctify you wholly. Because that's what God wants to do. God has plans for your life. More than what you can possibly think or imagine. 
He wants to do so much more in your life than you even understand that you are capable of. This morning, God wants you to offer yourself up. He's not going to force it on you. He's not going to take you by the ear and drag you up to the altar. Okay? He's not going to open the Bible and stuff your face in it to make sure that you're reading. But he wants to have a partnership with you. He wants us to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. To really begin to live the life of love to which he has called us. So if you want to experience that kind of love this morning, if you want to experience that kind of love and express that kind of love in your life this week, all you have to do is ask. There's no special hocus-pocus formula for becoming entirely sanctified. God is willing to pour out his spirit on you this morning. He wants to do it. It's not like he's got this test and this scale that you have to stand on and say, uh, well, I guess you're not ready for the Spirit yet. You know, you have to pass this 100-page multiple-choice essay in order to be blessed with the Holy Spirit. God just wants you to come. He just wants you to surrender. All you need to do this morning is to ask God to fill you to overflowing with the Holy Spirit. To empower you to live the life of love that he has called you to. Now I will give you this caution. It's not going to be easy. Because it means that when you go to work on Monday, or Tuesday, if you're not working on Monday because Monday's a holiday, if you go to work on Tuesday... It means you're probably going to interact with your coworkers a little bit differently than you did on Friday. And that can be awkward. That can be difficult. But God still wants you to do it. Because God loves those people. God loves the people that hate him. God loved you while you still hated him. He loves them, even though they hate him. Even though they only use the word Jesus as a curse word, he loves them. And Jesus is not here physically on the world today. He's coming back. He's going to be here physically someday, but not today. Well, maybe today, but not at this exact second. But you are. At least I hope you are. You look like you are. If you're not, it's kind of scary. Right? So God wants to use you to reach the world with his love. So I'm going to pray. And I'm going to pray for for myself. And I'm going to pray for you guys. But where you're at, if you want to stay there, if you want to come up here, wherever, this is not a, a... Again, this is not a magical place, this altar. You know, it's not like this is places holier than where you are at right, right now. This is a place that has been set apart to meet with God.
but you can meet with God in your seat. You can meet with God driving on the way home. Just keep your eyes open. Okay? You can meet with God at home. You can meet with God at work, at school, in the park, in bed. You can meet with God anywhere. So meet with God right now. Wherever you want to meet with God. If you want to kneel, if you want to stand up, if you want to prostrate yourself, however God is calling you to meet with him, meet with him right now. Let's pray together. Lord God, I don't know how to love the way that you want me to love. Lord, there are a lot of people in my life right now that I don't like, that I don't know how to show love. But you do. And Lord, I can't do it on my own. Lord, I can't do it. Lord, it's only through you that I can do anything. Lord, it was only through your power that I was even able to stand up this morning. It was only through your power that I was even able to ask you into my life in the first place. So Lord God, this morning, my prayer is that you would take over my life. That every interaction that I have this week will be filled with your presence. That every word that I say would be filled with your love. That every action that I take would be to show the world the love that you have shown to me. And Lord God, you know I can't do it on my own. I can only do it if you show up in my life. So Lord, I open myself to you this morning. Take over. Transform me more today than I was yesterday into your image. Empower me and enable me to live the life to which you have called me. And may your name be glorified through everything that I do. May Reading be changed because of the way that I am serving you and what you are doing in and through me. May Pennsylvania be changed. May the Church of the Nazarene be changed. May the United States, the world, be changed Because you are working in and through me. Lord God, we commit to you this morning to have your way in us. May your name be glorified. In your name I pray. Amen.